Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 1 through 13. This morning, we are going to talk about something that honestly kind of worries me. And it worries me because my fear is that the people who need this the most won't think they need it at all. And the people who need it the least will think they need it the most. And what I want to talk about this morning is really something that all of us need to hear. And it's how to avoid pride. And even for myself, I'm intimidated to to preach on this subject as I myself have pride in my life. And so the irony of Ben Tugwell talking about how to avoid pride is like the irony of Kim Kardashian coming up next week to talk about parenting. And that's how qualified I feel to talk about pride. But on a serious note, here's my challenge. If you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't struggle for, with pride, you're likely the person who needs this the most. And while you're sitting there thinking, well, there's someone else in this room who really needs this more than I do, you probably need it more than you even realize. Because if there's one thing that can build the church is humility, and there's one thing that can destroy the church, it's pride. And so my goal, and Paul's goal this morning, is to show the church of Philippi um, what it means to be built up in love. That's been the whole theme. We've seen it in chapter 1. You've seen it in chapter 2. And what I often say is, oftentimes we think about the opposite of love is we say what? Hate. But a better definition, a more biblical definition, the way that Paul actually defines the opposite of love, he actually defines the opposite of love as pride. And so we're going to see that in um, the text this morning. But here's what's been happening in Philippians. Paul, in chapter 1, he writes to encourage the church. He tells them how much he loves them. He hopes that their love abounds more and more with each other. And then he ends chapter 1 with helping them see a gospel perspective of suffering. He wants the love of Christ to unite them. He wants the love of Christ to sustain them in suffering. And then in chapter 2, what Paul begins to do is begin to speak directly to matters of their heart. He knows that they're about to receive suffering, so not only does he want them to have a view of God's sovereignty in suffering, but he also wants them to be unified. And the way that Paul wants to unify the church is not give them a a seven-step goal and all these different vision statements and all these different things. It's just a basic thing. The way that he wants them to be unified is so that they would be humble. And they would be humble like Jesus. Because when we're humble like Jesus, we can be unified. We can grow from each other. We can encourage one another. We can love one another better. And so that's Paul's goal here in chapter 2. And so my goal as we preach this text is we're going after the same idea that Paul is after with the church at Philippi. My goal is how, how is we, Integrity Church, how can we fight pride Together, And so that's what we'll see this morning in God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. This is how Paul starts this chapter. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I want you to see... The irony of the language that Paul uses beginning in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And it almost seems like he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe if there's encouragement in Christ, here, find it this way. 
It seems like that's what he's saying, but it's not. He, he's not. He, Christ, Paul knows that there is absolutely encouragement in Christ. But the way that he's describing encouragement in Christ is the irony. The way that he's describing encouragement in Christ is what we often overlook. Because the way that he describes encouragement in Christ is in, in, in verses 1 and 2 is really how we receive love um, from each other. Most of the time we think about receiving encouragement from Christ. Man, we're, I'm so discouraged right now. I just need an encouraging word from Christ. I need to be encouraged in Christ. Most of the time we think of, okay, we need to turn to Scripture. And that's good. That's true. We can find encouragement in Christ in Scripture. We should find encouragement in Christ in Scripture. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about. Sometimes we talk about prayer. Well, maybe, man, I just need to go to the Lord. And I need to pray. And I need to cast all my cares upon him because he cares for me. He's the great high priest who sympathizes with my weaknesses, so I need to come to him and I need to pray. Absolutely, you can find encouragement in Christ in prayer, but that's not what he's talking about in chapters 1 and 2, or verses 1 and 2. Sometimes we think, okay, man, I just, maybe I just need to hear that one song, that Lauren Daigle song, or that Chris Tomlin song, and that's what I need to go to, and that's where I need to find my encouragement in Christ, and certainly we can find encouragement in Christ there, but that's not what he's talking about. How is he talking about finding encouragement in Christ? Verses 1 and 2, he uses language like sympathy. He, He uses language like participation in the Spirit, which participation in the Spirit actually means fellowship. He's talking about believers coming together. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but one of the primary ways that God wants you to be encouraged in Christ is through other believers. Think about your whole life as a believer. Most of the time that you felt most encouragement and love from the Lord is when you felt encouragement and love from other people that are believers. And this is what Paul's saying. If there's any encouragement in Christ, hey, this is where I want you to look. I want you to look among other believers. Now, Christian culture, we often minimize the importance of receiving encouragement in Christ through other people. Because we say things all the time like, Jesus is all you need, right? Jesus is all you need. And that's absolutely true. Jesus is all you need. However, God has created a world where one of the primary ways that we receive love from him is through other people to see that Jesus is all we need. God's love for us doesn't just extend to just us and him. It's also, it's also, it's not just vertical, but it's also horizontal. It relates to how we deal with other people. So receiving God's love through others isn't needy. It's actually healthy because that's how God has designed it. And some of you are more independent and you don't think you need other people. But let me just tell you, this is not how God has created this world. God has formed this world for you to trust him and him alone. However, one of the ways that God has helped us see that truth is through other believers in Christ. Think about it this way. If you're a Christian, God has given you other believers in Christ, to be a part of a family. God calls us his children. God calls us his sons. God calls us his daughters. And for me, I have two boys, and I love when they love each other because what they've learned is love that we've given them, and they're learning how to reciprocate that to one another. And so it just brings joy to my heart when I know, man, they're loving each other. How crazy would it be It's for me to look at my kids and say, I don't want you to love each other. I want you to love me and me alone, right? That would be unusual. Now, certainly, God wants us to love him and him alone. 
But one of the ways that we learn and grow in that is how we love and care for each other. And so the, we, the language that Paul uses, he says participation in the Spirit, partnership in the Spirit, fellowship in the Spirit. He says affection and sympathy that we have for one another. Affection in, in the Greek is actually strange. It's the word bowels, which means deep affection in the gut. You ever heard the expression, I was worried sick about you? That means, man, you really care deeply, profoundly for this person. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, I want you to experience this through other believers and through the affection and the fellowship that you have with each other. And then he continues, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. Then he contrasts that. He says, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, what's the word? Humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you, not, uh, each, each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So here you see the contrast of love and pride. He goes, love looks like this. You want to be partnered together. You're of the same mind together. Love is you have sympathy. You have affection uh, for one another. And then he contrasts that in verse 3 with pride. Someone who does something from selfish ambition or conceit. Not con- the word conceit, actually, in the, in the Greek, it actually means kinodoxia. Kenosis means empty, and doxia means glory. That's the word conceit, kinodoxia, empty glory, vain glory. Don't do anything for empty glory or vain glory. In other words, conceit is really this idea of self-worship. You say, well, I don't struggle with that. Well, how, how often... Do you cringe when you don't get glory that you think you deserve? That shows you that you have vain glory. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says, if you want to find out how proud you are, he says, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or patronize me or show off? He says, how often do I look for vain glory? That's what he's saying. So for this reason, pride is when we look at ourselves more than we care about what God wants for our lives or we don't care about others. And this is why I always say that pride is really the root of all sin. Pride says that what we think and what we want is is supreme over everything else. C.S. Lewis goes on to say in, in Mere Christianity, he says, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. So what does Paul say to echo that? He says, you've got a war against this. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 3, verse 4, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So I love what Paul does here because he doesn't just tell you how to walk in humility, he actually gives you an example of humility. He gives you, honestly, a perfect 
unattainable example of humility by introducing you to the Lord Jesus. Because there's only one person that has the ability to speak about humility with any authority, and that's the Lord Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus was perfectly humble. And so he begins verse 5 with this. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have this mind, have this attitude among yourself, have this humility among yourselves. But he also tells you, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer in Christ, what he's saying is because of the transforming work of Christ in your life, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, he says, you have the ability, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have the ability to fight pride to war against pride in your life. And then he tells you about the example that Christ set. And this is verse 6. He says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He says in verse 7, He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death to the point, be, be, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, here's what's significant in these verses. Chapter 2, it's one of my favorite places in, in all of Scripture. Uh, what it does is it summarizes the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's four text in the New Testament that, that I think every believer should know where, how to turn, where to go to when they want to talk about what Christ has done. One of them is John chapter 1. John chapter 1 describes who Christ was before he came into the earth, that Jesus Christ reigned above all things. He, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he begins to tell you who he was. Then he came into human flesh, into the world, to bring light to the world. That's John chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus Christ Christ is the exact imprint of the, na- of, of the nature of God, that the angels sing his praises, that Christ is better than all things and better than Moses. And so it gives this grandiose picture of who Christ is. That's Hebrews chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 does a really similar thing, talks about how Christ, that Christ holds all things together. And so it gives these big, grandiose pictures of Christ. And the other, the fourth place that does that really well is actually Philippians chapter 2. And what's interesting in Philippians chapter 2 is as this display of Christ is taking place, he's using this in the conversation of challenging believers to be humble. To be like Christ. And this chapter, in chapter 2 is so profound that some scholars, most scholars, even liberal and conservative, believe that Paul is actually quoting a poem or like a song that the first century believers wrote to claim and proclaim what Christ has done. That Christ humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So for early first century believers, this was like singing Paul reminding them of the song Amazing Grace. Like for us Christians today, that's like one of the most popular songs. You can go anywhere across the world and sing Amazing Grace. It's all in all, all different types of languages and different types of styles. But we sing it even here in Integrity, even in 2018, we sing Amazing Grace. Because we know this song. And so Paul is reminding them 
of something they would have already known. This, this, the way that this flows, according to, to scholars, Greek scholars, they say that the, the way that this flows in verses 6 through 11 is something that they would have known, a mantra that he's bringing them back to. And he's saying, look at the humility of Christ in this, in this song or this poem that you've already heard over and over and over again. And so this is the mindset that Paul wants them to have, and he's reminding them of the humility of Christ. How, how humble was Jesus, that Jesus came in, in obedience, that he would become obedient to die, that he became man for us, that God in heaven became man for us. This is known as the incarnation of Christ. Sometimes I think there's a tendency for people to believe that Jesus Christ, okay, he was born on Christmas Day, and that was the beginning of Jesus. Well, Jesus has always been. Jesus, the reason why we celebrate Christmas is not beginning of Jesus. It's actually the incarnation of, of God being wrapped in flesh. God came down and became man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. God became man. He was wrapped in human flesh. The word incarnation actually comes from this idea of carne, which some of you, if you are a believer in Christ, you like chili, right? Especially around this time of year. My wife makes incredible, like literally she's been in like competitions and she's won several times. Her chili is amazing. I love my wife's chili and I love watching football and my wife's chili in the, in the fall for the glory of God. That's just how I worship the Lord. But one of the things about chili that makes it great is chili con carne. Do y'all know what that means? It literally means chili in the way that God intended it. It means chili with meat. That's what it means. Chili without meat, according to Ben Tugwell, is called garbage. <laughs> chili with meat is the way that God intends it. Here's the why it, this the way that God intends it. Because what is the incarnation of Christ? It means God with meat. God wrapped in human flesh. Why does God make chili good with meat in it? Because that's how you identify and you know that God is good. (laughs) How do we identify with God? He wraps himself in human flesh so that you can identify with him. So that he can sympathize with your weaknesses and he can understand what you've been through. And he's, he's been tempted in every way as you've been tempted. And you can identify, that's God. He loves me. He relates to me. He understands me. He knows me. And you say, I know him. That's Jesus. That's the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Because we're, he's told, we're told in scripture that he is the mediator between us and God. We relate to him through the incarnation because God became Flesh, And this is why he says in verse 6, he says, who being in the form, who being in the morph, he morphed himself as a, uh, into a man. He says he's the exact imprint of his nature in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so then Paul addresses these really eight steps that Jesus takes to show us how he is God in the flesh. And that he's, through humbling himself, this is what he did. And we'll see it in verse 6. He says, he, first of all, did not count equality with God a thing to be 
grasped. His first step to humility was not clinging to his exalted position in divine rights. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be clung to in such a way that he would disobey the Father's will. He's willing to go through being a man to obey the Father's will. And then the second thing, he says he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. Better translated, he emptied himself. Remember in verse 3, when we talked about the word kenosis, it means empty. He made himself nothing. He made himself empty like us. The idea is the same as verse 3, but, but, but and the ESV makes it even better by saying he, has, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He laid aside his, his, his glory in the view of man. He concealed his glory in the view of man. The Gospels are consistent. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are consistent in showing us that Jesus Christ did not lose his deity. So what does he mean when he emptied himself? Well, he didn't empty himself of all of his divine rights, but some of them, and he limited himself to get access to them at all times. First of all, he chose to limit his divine power. He left eternal riches and he became poor. God, who was in a place with no, that was timeless, became submissive to time. He was omnipresent, meaning he can be everywhere at any point, and Jesus Christ becoming man can only be at one place at one time. God, who was omnipotent, came in the form of the man and where he would grow weary, and he would go, go tired and hungry, and he would undergo temptation. God was seated on the throne, but then he was born in, the, in a barn, God was living in heaven, and then he chose to live in poverty. God was surrounded by angels singing to his glory where he would then come to the earth as a man where he would be disrespected by sinners who would mock him. And to suffer as a man of sorrows. So he set aside his rights, and it's not that he didn't possess them. He chose not to access them, or at least continually. Yet he still claimed to be God because he had the ability to forgive sin. He had the ability to allow the blind to see. He had the ability to raise people from the dead. So this is what he did in his humility. And this is why in verse 7 he says he took the form of a servant. Form also meaning morph. He morphed into a servant. He became a slave for us. Verse 7 also says that he was born in the likeness of man. God made him a man through a miraculous conception. He was not born, he was born of a virgin, meaning he was not born to carry the curse of sin that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. In verse 8, he says, and he was being found in human form. Form meaning that is how he's recognized. He doesn't use the word, the same Greek word here is morph. He actually uses the word shema, which means the outward shape. He took the outward shape of a man. He didn't have an outward shape as God. He didn't have the outward shape as a servant. He was God. He was a servant, but he took the outward shape as a man. And then he, what does it say he did in verse 8? He humbled himself, which literally means, and I love the way that the original language says this, it means he was laying low. He was laying low both before God and to other men. Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's why he's the greatest example of humility. 
Jesus left everything that you and I here this morning seek. All of us want stability. He left stability for instability by being born in poverty, by being a slave, not a ruler. Jesus never owned a house. We all want comfort. Jesus left comfort to be born in a stable. And he would then live, live in po- poverty where he didn't eat fine foods. He didn't have the nicest things. He didn't die like a king. He died like a crook. We all want vindication. We want our value and goodness to be recognized. Jesus was never recognized by those in power. He died a hideous, painful, shameful death without any vindication. Politics scorned him, religion scorned him, and even his closest friends abandoned him. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did to become humble before the Father. And it says that he was humble, becoming humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on the cross was reserved for the worst and most despicable criminals. God became a servant, took on the form of man, and died the most humiliating death. So did God leave him in that state? Aren't we told throughout Scripture that God resists the proud? But doesn't he give grace to the humble? So what did he do with his own son? Look in verse 9. Therefore... Because of the humility of Christ, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does God leave him high and dry in his humiliation? No. He exalts him as he is humble before him. He allows him to be the savior of all. We're told then the rest of the scriptures tell us that three days later that Christ rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of of Satan, sin, and death. We're told that God gives Christ all the authority on earth and under earth. We're told that Jesus receives the position of a great high priest who can sympathize with all of God's people. We're told that Christ now intercedes for us on our behalf and communicates for us on behalf of us to the Father. <clears throat> and then we're told that he receives a name above all names, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, here's the significance of that. To the Philippian church, they knew one name, and that was Nero. Every knee bows to Nero. That's the persecution that they're facing. Paul is actually in prison under Nero's authority, under Roman authority. And so they're even hearing Nero is going to bow to Jesus. Yes. Nero is going to bow to Jesus, but it will be too late for Nero. He'll bow to Jesus when he's burning in hell, but he'll acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That means every ruler, every bit of authority will bow to Christ. Nero Hitler, the fallen angels, the unredeemed dead will bow and recognize this Christ is the king. Amen?
And isn't it a privilege this morning that we don't have to bow the same way Nero does? We don't have to bow in hell. We get to bow on earth. And we get to bow on earth as a son or as a daughter. And we get to bow with thanksgiving in our heart. We get to bow in a way that says, I love you. I honor you. That's humility. That's the heart of a humble person. Acknowledging the weight of what Christ has done on the cross and coming before him and saying, because of all that you've done for me, I give my life to you and I bow before you because I am grateful and I am thankful that you are my God, that you are my king, and that you are my heavenly father who deeply wants to know me. What a privilege that is this morning. So if you want to begin humility, you want to say, okay, man, I want to fight pride, Ben. I've seen pride in my own life, and I want to fight this thing. Start here. Look at where Paul took the Philippians and said, look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate example and the perfect example of humility, and try to be that. You can't. So what does it do? It causes you to bow. I cannot do this, God, so I need you. So I'm going to bow before you because I know that I cannot obtain this righteousness that is before me. I know that I can't do it. And so this is what Paul does. He doesn't leave them hanging. Notice what he says at the very end, verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, therefore, church, in light of all this, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does this mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, work for your salvation in light of everything that Christ did. That would, that would contradict itself. Okay, if Christ came and Christ died and Christ did all this so that I would have a relationship with Christ, why would it make sense for me to say, okay, now work on your salvation? He doesn't say that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean, fear and trembling? Does this mean that I believe that God is vindictive and God is going to harm me if I don't obey him in the way that I'm supposed to obey? He's not saying that at all. In fact, He's just reminding you the posture of you being humble before him. He says, therefore, meaning because of what Christ did on the cross, this is what it should do to you. It should cause you to constantly be reminded of the good news of the gospel, constantly reminded of the humility that Christ displayed. And then it should bring to you a, a humble fear, meaning I know you and I honor you and you are holy and I am not. And I am thankful for all that you've done. And what happens when we begin to look at the cross and look at the humility of Christ? We begin to see the pride and the sin of our own hearts. And we're reminded of the work of salvation in our lives. Look at verse 13. He says, for God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what Christ is doing in you. And so I believe that the fight against pride is really a fight for maturing in Christ. Because it's acknowledging how sinful we really are and acknowledging more and more our need of Christ, which causes really fear and trembling before him. God, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, but you're so kind and you're so good to me. 
When I think about sermons, it's rare, first of all, that our motives are 100% pure. I wish I could tell you, man, I've got 100% pure motives every time I come up here. Every time I want to preach, I want to get up here and say, man, I want to preach for the glory of God. Like that, that's my heart, and that's my heart because I'm a believer. But I will be honest, there's a big part of me who wants to preach that says, I really want people to think I'm pretty cool, all right? I want to get up here, and there's some weeks, man, it's like this war. I do want to do it for the glory of God. I want to do it for the glory of God because I love Jesus. But there's another part. Man, I hope they think I'm funny. I hope this joke kind of lands that they think I'm pretty funny, right? I hope, man, maybe somebody will tweet something that I say. And then someone else will see it like a famous person and then think, wow, who's that, right? Maybe one of you will just put me as an Insta story. You know, at B. Tugwell, hashtag killing it right now this morning, Integrity Church, right? There's a part of me, a prideful, sinful part of me that wants that. You say you're messed up. Welcome to Integrity Church, right? Try to find another church so the pastor doesn't want to do it. I know a lot of pastors. They want that too, all right? We want praise. That's every single one of us this morning, if you're honest. And if it scares you that I'm being that honest, maybe there's some pride in you that you don't only want to accept. Because that is in all of us, this desire for vain glory, this desire for self-worship. You're like, that's not me. No, that's absolutely you. We are glad that you are here. Because think about it. Every time we sin, we're seeking glory that is not our own. This is why Augustine, he says, Augustine says in in the book City of God, he Lincoln's pride to a mother who is pregnant with all sins. And I don't think we realize even how sinful we are, but when we look at the cross and we look at the humility of Jesus Christ, it should bring us to know, man, there's no way I can be that humble. There's no way I can be that way before God. And it shows us how desperate we are of Christ. So when you, and I'm not trying to tell you this to maximize the sin of your life. I'm not trying to tell you this to shame you. I'm just telling you how badly we need Jesus. Because there's not a day, there's not an hour, and there's probably not very many minutes you go without sinning, without wanting vainglory in your life. I did meet a guy one time in college. I was in a Bible study. He said, man, I'm doing really great. I said, you are? He said, yeah, man. I have not sinned one time this week. I'm like, dude, you're killing it. (laughs) Why did you tell me, though? Isn't that being prideful, right? Yeah. Checkmate, got him, right, you know? But he doesn't know how sinful, he doesn't know how prideful he was. What does 1 John say? We say that we are without sin, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. Now, he does say if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. But what is it about First John that draws us to that? It's humility before God to know how sinful we are and how much we need Christ. And so this morning, my, my plea for you is to don't stand here and say, man, I've conquered being proud. No, all of us struggle with pride. All of us. And you won't ever land at being completely humble. You will fight pride your whole life. And you will strive to be humble your whole life. Humility is really a direction and a posture. Humility is really not a destination. 
It's something that we need constantly. It's something that we need, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to, work, to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love the way C.J. Mahaney describes it in his book, creatively entitled Humility. He describes himself as a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. Might that be us? Might we say, okay, I'm a proud man. I'm a proud woman pursuing humility by the grace of God. That should be the heart of every believer. Everyone is proud just in different ways. And the goal and the hope through God's grace is that we may not be blind to the pride in our life. This is where true grace is found. So my hope this morning is you would ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. Search your heart this morning of pride in your life. And I'm not talking about, man, yeah, I was prideful. I told somebody how much I bench pressed the other day and I shouldn't have. Man, I was prideful. I bragged about my Fortnite score. I was, I was a little over the top there. I bragged that, you know, ECU won yesterday, you know. Or I bragged about my favorite team. Or I bragged about my fantasy football team. Whatever you're bragging about in that way. Yes, you can repent of that this morning if you need to, right? But I'm saying, man, where is it? that you were trying to steal glory that belongs to God and taking it for yourself? Where is the pride in your life? It doesn't necessarily have to be this out bodacious thing that everyone so sees. Oftentimes the deepest pride in our hearts are things that we conceal that no one would see. Perhaps the pride in your life is you discovering up a sin that you don't want to confess. Perhaps the pride in your life is an anger that you have or a jealousy that you have towards someone. Maybe pride is an unreconciled relationship that you're allowing to linger. Perhaps a pride is for you to tell someone, thank you, I'm thankful for this. Perhaps a pride is admitting that you were wrong. So perhaps this morning my hope is that you would examine the pride that's in your life. Because it will absolutely destroy you and not allow you to see the gospel clearly. And so Paul's hope for the church at Philippi is fight this pride. Fight for one another to love each other and look at the humility of Jesus Christ and press into those places. So could we do that this morning, Integrity Church? Let's pray. God, we're so grateful to hear the good news.